You know, people often talk about like the role of Greek and Hebrew in sermon prep and in sermons. And I think a lot of people agree, you probably shouldn't actually talk much about Greek and Hebrew in your sermon, but your sermon should be informed by it. And I think an excellent way to for your sermon to be shaped and informed by Greek and Hebrew, again, is being able to read the entire passage in real time, experiencing it as a whole. Um, and you definitely pick up those nuances and the focus and the emphasis and the tone and the contrast. You pick all that up through reading. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the CPT Podcast. I'm Zach Wagner. Today I'm talking with Nick Mesmer, who is the co-founder and head of growth for Biblingo, which is a company that focuses on creating software for the learning and retention of biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew. And that is exactly what we're talking together with Nick about today how biblical languages are taught, how language acquisition works, and how what his company is doing can address some of the challenges and shortcomings even associated with how languages are taught and acquired for Christians and pastors. Let's get right into the conversation. Uh, Nick Mesmer. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, Nick, great to have you on the podcast. Uh, looking forward to talking today about biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, language acquisition, how uh, pastors and students can learn. And then I'm particularly interested in the conversation around retaining mm -hmm. uh, their knowledge uh, and expanding their knowledge of biblical languages. Um, but the occasion for having you on is that you are one of the co-founders is that is that the right right way yeah. to describe it yeah co-founders of uh, uh and co-designers of an app called biblingo which uh kind of not inconspicuously is playing off duolingo which is a popular language learning app but this is for uh ancient languages biblical languages in particular greek and hebrew in this kind of gamified language learning model mm -hmm. that uh, we're going to talk about that specifically, but also just kind of philosophy behind language uh, acquisition and retention. Uh, but before we get to that and get to the software and get to the project, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, um, maybe just a little bit about your family and um, educational background and leading up to the decision to put together this software that has been out for a bit now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to, to be on um, and talk about this kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, my name is Nick Mesmer. Uh, I currently live in the Atlanta area um, okay. with my wife, Lauren, and we have three daughters. Our oldest uh, is Eden. She's two and a half. And then we have twins, Micah and Joanna, um, who are about 16 months old. And then we are expecting um, number four, any minute now. Um, and that will be our first boy. So we're really excited about that as well. All right. Well, congrats. Uh, so tell Thank us a little you. bit about how you grew up, kind of education, yeah. church context, all of that. Yeah. So, um, I, I did grow up in a, a non-Christian home, um, you did? Okay. family. Yeah. And, uh, I grew up moving around a lot as well. We moved every couple of years just for my dad's job. He would get transferred mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and partly because of that, I also, grew up kind of with minimal Christian influences, mm -hmm. at least for a consistent period of time. So by the time I got to high school, um, I would say I knew, I mean, absolutely nothing about the Bible or Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, didn't grow up in the Bible Belt or anything like that. So I didn't even have that kind of cultural aw awareness mm -hmm. of things. I couldn't tell you what John 3.16 was or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, in high school, um, I was very social, and so I would go to anything considered social. <laughs> and so I started <laughs> going to some youth groups and churches anytime um, I got invited and uh, just started to learn and, and get interested. Um, long story short, toward the basically finishing high school and going into college is when I would say I became a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, also at that time just became extremely interested in, in reading the Bible. 
um, obviously excited as a new Christian, but also just it was all so brand new to me. So I was just kind of eating it up. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the beginning of, of my faith journey. But I uh, went to college and um, didn't know what I wanted to do. Part of that was being a new Christian. It kind of like disrupted any plans I had for my future. And so I, I was kind of, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just picked a, a major in college communication studies that allowed me to kind of take any elective courses I wanted and just explore things. So I took religion classes and philosophy classes and linguistics classes and just anything that was int- interesting. And then I, I also uh, happened to take um, Greek and Hebrew classes as well. Um, just again, wanted to dive into the Bible. A friend of mine said, oh, you should learn Greek and Hebrew, which is maybe not a normal thing to tell a new Christian to do when they want to um, <laughs> learn the Bible better, but I'm glad he did. So that was the start of it. I fell in love with Greek and Hebrew and undergrad, yeah. uh, took as many courses as I could. And then, and it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Just to interject. I was going to ask, so this was, you were a communications major. Did I hear yeah. that? Did I hear that right? Yeah. So what about the kind of language learning process in Greek and Hebrew did captured you, would you say? Right yeah. So it's interesting because, um, my experience learning Greek and Hebrew, um, at, at that point learning it, um, I wasn't thinking that much about, you know, methodology and the sorts of yes. things we'll probably talk about. Uh, I learned it in a pretty traditional way. I will say I learned Greek in a classics department and yes. they do tend to approach things a little bit differently than like maybe a seminary or a Christian college. Sure. And then I learned Hebrew in a, a religion department with a bunch of kids who grew up, you know, going to Jewish day school and kind of already knew a lot of Hebrew or at least how to, you know, say it and, and things like that. So it was a bit different, but at the time I wasn't thinking much about methodology. I was just consuming it and devouring it as much as I could. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it just coincided with kind of the scriptures being new to me in general. And so yeah. I was just really excited about learning as much as I could. Um and that, that ended up leading me after undergraduate um, to do a master's program, uh, an MA in biblical exegesis at Wheaton College. Um, yes. It was you, and I, kind of, you and I are both graduates of that program. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I forgot that, that you were as well. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So I, I was just told again by a fr- the same friend who told me I should learn Greek and Hebrew said, okay. oh, this is probably one of the uh, master's programs that really emphasizes the languages the most. So I was like, Absolutely. okay, I'll do that. <laughs> and again, I, I didn't really have a career path in mind. I just, I just was wanting to dive in as much as I could. So, yeah, I wanted to go back to that because that's a unique, I think, journey of even learning the quote unquote biblical languages relative to, you know, a lot of the guests on here are theologians or scholars or pastors that would have learned like I did. My first exposure was undergrad at a Christian school. So not a classics department, not a, um, kind of, classical Hebrew in a Jewish faith context, but more kind of this, I don't want to say appropriated, but I think to some extent that's, that's not an entirely unfair description where in these Christian contexts, these languages kind of get boiled down Mm -hmm. to, again, I don't want to be uncharitable, but like the bare minimum kind of for purpose, get you, some facility in reading as much of the new Testament or as much of the Hebrew Bible as you possibly can, as quickly Mm -hmm. as you can. Um, and, uh, immediately your experience was, was different than that. I say, you know, in my context here in the university context, um, where I'm working on a PhD, um, the people who learned their Greek in a classics undergrad, um, you can tell because generally speaking, um, and maybe you can tell me, give me some insight into why this might be the case, but generally speaking, they can kind of run circles around people who learned it in a seminary. Yeah. Um, and I have some theories for why that might be the case. Uh, but maybe, maybe I'll just kind of put that to you as a question. Why do you think, um, just to start this conversation about language acquisition and how Mm -hmm. it's taught in Christian contexts and seminaries and et cetera, why do you think people coming out of undergrads in classics tend to have greater comfort, facility, 
in reading Greek in particular will talk about than yeah. someone coming out of a seminary? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think a couple things come to mind. One is something you referenced where in a lot of Christian college and seminary context, you, you're really getting the bare minimum when it comes to language classes. So like two semesters is pretty typical. Yeah. Um, I, I remember uh, when I did Greek in, the, in a classics department, I took four semesters and pretty much everyone who was in that first class with me was also in the fourth class. Everyone stuck yes. it through and, and took as much as they could, essentially. Um, and so I think there is a, a different perspective or maybe just a different kind of um, prioritizing of courses. I mean, in seminary, you're trying to cover so much. Um, whereas in classics, it really is like, let's learn the languages and then let's read as much as we can in the languages. Um, mm -hmm. And so all you're doing is the, is the languages. So that's, that's part of it. Um, there are some differences, I think, in kind of desired outcomes as well as methodology. So a, a big thing in terms of outcomes is in classics departments, um, the emphasis really is on reading, um, like kind of extensive reading, reading as much text as you can. Volume. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I remember like, you know, we would be assigned like so extremely long passages um, to, to read for our homework. Um, and then even when I um, went to Wheaton, for my grad program, and it was a phenomenal program, um, and I learned yes. a lot, and I lo absolutely loved it. But I, what years were you there, by the way? Uh, twenty eighteen, or no, twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen. Okay, so you would have been actually coming in right as I was as I was coming out. Oh, but anyway, you were yeah. about to illustrate something. Yeah, about the classes <laughs> to the exegesis. Yeah, program. yeah, essentially, just that. Even in my master's level program. Um, that was very rigorous. The, the kind of length of passages we were assigned was so much, were so much smaller than what yes. I was getting in undergrad. So, um, classics, there's more of an emphasis on reading and volume. Um, whereas in kind of biblical Greek contexts, um, there's a lit, a, a bit more emphasis on like translating and grammatical mm -hmm. analysis and things that kind of slow you down. Um, and they can be good things because you're trying to go deeper, uh, but you do miss out on that ability to sit down with a text and and just read it um, mm -hmm. and and actually understand it. So yeah. those are some big differences on the Hebrew side. You know, it's it's different for other reasons. Like I said, it was mostly um, uh, people who grew up going to like Jewish day school, so or you know Hebrew school. So uh, they just were so much more comfortable actually speaking the language um, and not yes. even necessarily conversationally, but just reading aloud and pronouncing yep. and sounding yep. fluid. And that might seem like a superficial thing, but it actually is really important even to the reading process. Yes. Um, just having that comfortability with the language. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it strikes me and, you know, to their credit, many of my professors in undergrad and grad school would, you know, ask us to read aloud Mm -hmm. They, you know, they know about auditory learning and this mm -hmm. sort of stuff and getting a feel for the rhythm of be it. Well, I was about to say paradigms, but even just hearing the spoken language, because you, you like, I think a lot of anybody who's even going back to like, uh, you know, high school, if you learn a language, you, I, I imagine a lot of people have kind of like tattooed in their brain that kind of endings for the present tense in Spanish or German or whatever that is, just because you say them in rote. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm getting, I'm getting sidetracked a little bit here. The point being that in my context, there was educational context. There was very little opportunity to even speak it aloud. That was not emphasized for the most part. And then um, almost no, um, emphasis on producing the language, mm -hmm. um, which I know is something that's a big part of what you're doing in, in, with Biblingo. Right. And, um, I think a lot of, uh, you know, trends in language acquisition, even with language of ancient languages and quote unquote dead languages, um, is trending in that direction too. So we'll, we'll get to that. Um, but, for now, maybe just kind of continue in in your kind of journey. So you're you did a, a master's at Wheaton, mm -hmm. 
and finished that up, did your comp exams. I'm not sure if your comp exam was the same one I did where you get 10 verses and then you translate it and parse and then you have to write. What was, what was your... Yeah, what actually, your like? my class was the very first graduating yes. class where they switch to a either comprehensive exam or submitting like a dossier of sure. kind of a collection of, yep. of papers you wrote that had to meet certain requirements. So I think pretty yeah. much everyone opted for, for, for that. that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember talking after I graduated, talking to Dr. Uh, John Walton about that change. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was definitely the proponent of the traditional model. Yeah. If I remember yeah. correctly. Um, but yeah, I'll tell you what, I mean, to this day, there are certainly things about, you know, because I took my comp exams at the exegesis program would have been in 26. No, yes, 2016 or something like that. I took my comp exams. And there are ways in which my kind of facility with Greek and Hebrew have moved far beyond what they were at the time when I was taking those exams. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what, I was probably never as good at I have never been as good at things like parsing and paradigms and just the like the really granular, you know, first Aleph in the Hifil does this, you know, the the kind of like really, really nitpicky stuff um, as I was then. So to the and that's that's one aspect of of language learning. Um, mm-hmm. So credit to, to that model and that program. Um, but man, that stuff can fall off real, real quick. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's continue, continue on with you. Uh, you yeah, uh, so, finished that program and then, and then what happened next? Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, I wasn't really uh, super career minded in general, but um, specifically with the program as well. So uh, just at, during the program, I was uh, a couple of my friends had started a business uh, like a marketing business and mm-hmm. um I just did part-time work for them writing because um, I enjoyed, enjoyed writing. So I was like writing content for them. And then when I graduated, they offered me a full-time job and it felt like a wise decision as we were starting to try to grow our family. So um, so I did that. So I went from you know Wheaton to doing marketing, um, totally unrelated, and did that for a couple of years. And then, um, yeah, and I guess relevant to the story is I just experienced what I think most people experience. It was very hard with a full-time job and a, <clears throat> a growing family to yes. keep up with the languages and spend time yes. doing them. And so I definitely saw, you know, some atrophy. In, in fact, I I did a I took a year off between undergrad and and the grad program, mm-hmm. and even in that year, yes, saw a lot of atrophy in, in my in the languages to the point where I basically, you know, had had to because I took a year off, um, I had to actually take like placement exams when I went to Wheaton. Um, and I just had to cram like crazy to pass those, um, to get credit for what I actually did in undergrad. And then, so then again, when I was just working, uh, similar experience and, and so really, um, kind of what happened next was just, uh, that same friend I've mentioned, um, who recommended learning Greek and Hebrew and then recommended Wheaton. Uh, kind of came to me and and started talking to me about some of his experiences with uh, he 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 was um you know all this time already knew Greek and Hebrew was very 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 good at Greek and Hebrew but kind of came to me and shared that he was kind of learning a new way of of doing Greek and Hebrew um and so he he had his kind of short version is he had um studied linguistics and then uh went moved to Jerusalem uh, to do a PhD in Hebrew linguistics. Um, and while he was there, he did some of these programs that really uh, only exist in Jerusalem um, that are kind of these immersive programs for Greek and Hebrew, where you, yes. you literally sign up for like a six-week course or something, and you only speak in, in Greek, biblical Greek and Hebrew the whole time. Classical. Yeah. Yes. Um, and so you, you don't use any English or anything else. Um, so very, very different. And so... He was telling me about that and how helpful it was. I remember actually he came back and visited from Jerusalem one time um, and was at my house and, he's, and he had to take a phone call. He said, oh, I, I uh, have a phone call with my friend every day at this time. And he answered it and they just spoke in, in Koine Greek the whole time. And it just blew me away because um, yes. I'd never seen anything like it. So anyway, he, he at the time also had this idea um, for 
developing some sort of uh, platform to help basically take this experience he had experienced in Jerusalem and try to make it more accessible to people who can't, you know, travel to Jerusalem to do these immersive programs. Um, and it seemed like, you know, an app or a software program was kind of the best way to take that immersive environment and make it uh, more accessible. So he had this idea for Biblingo and I kind of, you know, was in very interested in Greek and Hebrew, but also was getting some like business experience. And so he, he brought sure. me on to, to try to make it happen. Um, and so that was about, I don't know, three or four years ago now. Okay. Well, the software launched what? How how long ago? Um, I, I'm so bad at timelines, but I believe we launched the over a year. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I think we we launched the kind of initial public version in July of 2020, actually. So 2020. Okay, so it's been that long. Okay, yeah. So yeah. probably maybe a little over a year ago is when I started here here seeing things about it and hearing yeah. about it, and then recently. Um, within the past couple of months, you've launched a mobile app version. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So previous I, previously, it was just like a web application. Um, so you just used an internet browser and it was really designed for like a laptop, like a larger device. It, it didn't work very well on mobile. Um, yes. So yeah, we're really excited that we now have native mobile apps for iOS and Android. Yes. Yeah. And you can do it in both places. Right. Yep. Hey, everybody, just a quick preview of our annual theology conference here at the Center for Pastor Theologians, which we will host in Chicago on October 23rd to 25th. The evangelical tradition places the sermon at the center of church life. But what is our theology of preaching? Does it root the sermon in the miracle of God's word proclaimed or in human persuasiveness and personality? In our day, preaching is easily unmoored from its biblical, theological, and historical anchors. Too often, it has become a tool of celebrity. We have seen pulpits and preaching taken captive by political and pragmatic ideologies. We believe that the church must recapture the Apostle Paul's vision of preaching, preaching that comes not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that our faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This work will move us beyond homiletical technique. It will challenge our confidence in our own capacities and call into question methods that have subtly shaped our vision of the sermon and elevated human power. Church leaders must remind ourselves, again, that we are, first and foremost, servants, both of God's word and of God's people. We invite you to join us at the Center for Pastor Theologians 2023 conference, Power and the Pulpit. Recovering a Theology of Preaching, will be helped by speakers such as Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates, Matthew Kim, Nicole Martin, Kevin Van Hooser, Jeremy Treat, Jennifer McNutt, special guest Mike Cosper, Caitlin Beatty, JT English, Trig Johnson, Jim Samra, Eric Redman, and a whole bunch of others. It's going to be a great conference where we will gather together to seek wisdom and share insight about this important act that we do as pastors and as the church every week. Once again, we invite you to join us for the CPT conference Power and the Pulpits. You can learn more and sign up to secure your spot at cptconference.com. We, rather than kind of spending time talking about the kind of details of the app, which, you know, I I picked it up, maybe I did like a good, um, like a black, I almost said Good Friday, a Black Friday sale that you guys did, if I recall, or I guess this would have been like a cyber, a cyber, yeah. cyber Monday something. Um, and I said, okay, I'll try this. Partially because, because you know, in my again in my PhD program, I'm acquiring German for the first time, mm-hmm. and I have my kind of like German theological reading courses that I do, where they're kind of like fire hosing you with grammar, mm-hmm. and then uh, trying to give you as much relevant. Uh, vocab to just kind of cram just to again bare minimum and that's not you know that's not all bad you know not everybody has you know unlimited time but I was 
um, supplementing that with Duolingo right. in German, kind of learning some more conversational German, trying to uh, get more comfortable with sentence structures and things like that. And then I saw this and made me think, well, I do this for German. You know, I can drill vocab and read as I try to, but there's always going to be things, even in a PhD program, that kind of demand your attention, a lot of secondary source reading. Um, so it can be difficult even when you're kind of, it's your quote unquote job to be able to read Greek. Uh, you can very easily not spend very much time reading Greek. Right. Um, so I picked it up for that purpose and have found it just super, super helpful. You know, and I'm, I just, if, if nothing else, and it is much more than this, if nothing else as, um, for me, a kind of consistent grammar review, mm-hmm. as well as a kind of daily rhythm of practice and reading. So that's kind of, I guess, my commercial for it. Um, <laughs> and I will uh, talk about the way, you know, I think and hear any thoughts that you think on how this might be relevant for students and pastors in particular. Uh, but I wanted to talk about some of the philosophy, the like the language acquisition philosophy. We've kind of hinted at this in a few places and talk about uh, and talked about your friend with this immersion program. What would you identify? And again, we talked about this a little bit already as some of the downsides to kind of the way uh, Greek and Hebrew learning uh, is approached in a lot of seminaries and grad schools um, for for Christians and scholars and pastors or, or you know, aspiring pastors, perhaps we'll say. Um, and then what about your guys's project is is different and how is it seeking to address some of those? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a lot there. I think maybe just to give a little bit of the uh, a lay of the land, because we've talked a little bit about my experience with classics and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. I think it's not an exaggeration to say that 99% of courses and resources for biblical Greek and Hebrew out there uh, use what's called the grammar translation method. Um, and mm. there's there's some variation in exactly how that plays out, but uh, by and large, everyone's using some version of this method that's called the grammar translation method. And anyone who's listening who has tried to learn Greek and Hebrew because of that, you know, 99% has probably used that method, even if they haven't ever heard that term grammar translation method. Mm-hmm. And like you alluded to, in fact, even people who maybe took Spanish or French in like high school, um, there's a chance that they've experienced this as well. Um, it's in terms of modern languages, not it's kind of increasingly becoming less pre- prevalent, which maybe we'll talk mm-hmm. about why, but uh, it, you know, at least 20 years ago, it was, it was much more prevalent even for modern languages. And, and so kind of the gist of the grammar translation method is you learn a lot of, you kind of learn features of the language um, and you learn how to like label and describe them. So, you know, there might be like a verb ending and you learn, okay, this verb ending, uh, we, call, we call that the present active indicative or when the, the verb has this form, it's called the present active indicative. And then you get a description. Here's what that means. Present means X, Y, and Z. Active means X, Y, and Z. Indicative means X, Y, and Z. So you're getting kind of, you're learning to describe features of the language. Um, you also kind of memorize long lists of vocabulary, generally uh, memorizing like English glosses of, of mm-hmm. the vocabulary. And then what you do is you uh, take all of that and you try to translate usually like sentences. So mm-hmm. You know, you have a sentence and you look at it and you see that ending and you're like, okay, that's present active indicative. Here's what that means. Here's how I should translate it based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of maybe a crude, but I think pretty accurate version of the grammar translation method and how it plays out. Um, drawbacks, I think, can kind of be boiled down into two very broad things. Um really like what it doesn't do and what it does do. So I'll start with what it doesn't do. Um, What the grammar translation method doesn't do is uh, train you to read fluently. Mm -hmm. Um, We've kind of hinted at this some with the classic stuff, but what I mean by that is reading fluency very basically can be defined as being able to read long passages at a steady pace with minimal effort 
at a high level of comprehension. So that might seem like really simple, but you know, for most people, it's what you do when you read your native language. You sit down, you read it pretty quickly, and you understand it without thinking too much about how it means what it means, essentially. So um, you can get very specific with it. Um, You know, we can talk about what counts as a steady pace. Um, Research would show that someone learning a second language can pretty reasonably achieve a, a, a rate of 150 words per minute. To put that in context, that would mean you could read the Gospel of John in Greek in two hours. Um, I bring that up to say that virtually no one learning Greek and Hebrew yes. ever achieves that. And it, like, and Well, can, let's, I mean, can you go through that list just slowly again? Mm-hmm. Because it seems that you know, a traditional kind of three semesters in seminary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, it's it's a program set for specific ends and the ends of, you know, a seminary education in Greek and Hebrew are not fluent reading. So right. we're, you, that's fair enough. Maybe maybe they should be um, more so, or at least that should be part of, part of the way it's described. But yeah, go through that list again, because yeah. it seems that we're missing all of them. Right, right. So... Um, the way I said it is being able to read long passages at a steady yes. pace with minimal effort at a high level of comprehension. Yeah. So, so I mean, oh for four, it seems to me, right. you know, we're reading short passages excruciatingly slowly right. with, with, with a lot of effort and, you know, some choppy comprehension is right. I think probably again, 95% of seminary grads experience with the original language. Right, right. And, um, and yeah, so if you look at like the, the linguistics literature on reading fluency, a lot of it will talk about a co- like the components of fluency being speed, automaticity, which is a fun one, um, <laughs> and uh, like accuracy, essentially. So speed is, is what I mean by steady pace. And then automaticity is really that with minimal effort component. Mm-hmm. Uh, automaticity refers to cognitive, uh, low cognitive effort. And um, <clears throat> a big reason that you don't get that, for example, with the grammar translation method is you're, everything in the grammar translation method, you're learning, in ter- you're learning Greek and Hebrew in terms of English. So you're learning English glosses yes. for Greek and Hebrew words, and you're learning English descriptions of the language features. And so when you sit down to try to read, every step in the process is from Greek to English to meaning. So you kind of have to route everything through English. Um, And so that each step in that process requires effort. So by having to go from Greek to English to meaning, um, you're it's requiring more effort than just going from Greek straight to meaning. Right. Because you're not so to speak, translating it once, you're translating it multiple times exactly. across between languages and conceptualities and all sorts right. of things. And right. I think in that method, and I imagine a lot of listeners will be able to um, be able to relate to this. And something that was striking to me, again, I don't want to frame this entirely in, in context of the soft the software, mm-hmm. but something that was stri- striking to me is the way it's set up is such th- that there is little to no English bouncing or bouncing around in my brain as I'm doing it. Right. Um, it is just Hebrew or just Greek right. and images and sounds and things like this. Right. And um, I think, you know, pastors preparing sermons, even, you know, if they were in seminary just in the year previous, you got a lot of English bouncing around in your head. Right. When you're looking even at your, you know, 10 verses that you're looking at in the Greek. Exactly. And and so a lot of people have a hard time kind of thinking, like even conceiving of being able to read Greek without thinking in English. Yeah. Um, but anyone who has successfully learned a second language, you know, like a modern language, yes. totally understands this. And in, in fact, like a majority of people in the world can do this. They can think entirely in their native language and a second language. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of the world is bilingual in that way. So, um, so it's definitely possible. Um, It it really comes down there. There's a really helpful distinction when it comes to like language, learning languages between learning a language and learning about a language. 
Yes. Um, and so learning a language is more like developing a skill, whereas learning about a language is acquiring you know, information. So, you know, one thing to compare it to if, if you have never learned a second language is like music, right? If someone wants to learn music, it can really mean two different things. It can mean they want to learn to play an instrument or it can mean they want to learn about music, right? They want to learn music mm-hmm. theory. They want to know how music works at, on a theor- yes. theoretical level. Um, they're different things, right? Someone can be extremely skilled at playing the violin and know absolutely nothing about music theory. And someone yes. can be, you know, a top music theorist and not know how to play any instruments. Yes. Um, now there's some crossover, right? Probably most good music theorists actually know how to play some instruments and it informs their music theory. And, you know, a very skilled musician who learns some music theory would probably benefit in their actually playing of the instrument. So there's definitely a crossover, but you can see how there are distinct types of learning. And, you know, something- And I'll, I'll inter- interject real quick mm-hmm. to say that, um, you know, like Juilliard trained musicians, are probably pretty good at both. Right. Like, you know, you're you're a world-class performer and also know your theory right. really, really well, exactly. which is why in a, you know, place like that, you know, we talk about musicians being quote-unquote classically trained. Right. Um, there's, and they all tend to be really good performers, but also, also really good, yeah, I guess just theoricians of, of music as well, which makes them good at expressing music and good at writing music and all the rest of it. Exactly. So that's a really helpful analogy. I like yeah, that yeah, exactly. And you can kind of like pick pick your favorite analogy. You can do the same with sports. You can be very skilled at a sport or you can be a very good coach and not sure. be very skilled. So it kind of breaks down in a lot of ways, but yeah, or works in a lot, a lot of ways. But um, yeah. I the the way it crosses over is something like reading fluency is more like, playing an instrument, right? I mean, you even, we often use the word fluency for things like that. Like you, you're a more fluent player, right? It Mm -hmm. it takes little effort. There's a lot of flow. It's things like that. Um, Whereas the grammar and translation method is a lot more like a music theory class where you're learning a lot about the language, but you're not getting very skilled at using the language, whether it be for speaking or reading. Reading is a language skill as well. Um, Before we go on to the kind of solution, quote unquote, to the kind of mm -hmm. downsides of the grammar, uh, grammar translation method, as you've described it, I wonder if you could kind of give your pitch to someone who is a pastor, um, you know, maybe doesn't regularly even look at the original languages anymore, or they have their lexicon, and they kind of look it up when they're curious about some word and mm-hmm. get, you know, get their B-dag on or get their halot on. And that's kind of the extent of it for them these days. Um, or someone who's in seminary aspiring to pastoral ministry. Um, give your kind of pitch to someone who's like, yeah, the grammar and translation method kind of seems fine for what I do in church ministry. Mm-hmm. And um you know, and I don't hear you saying that everybody needs to become like proficient readers or of Greek and Hebrew, or it's a waste of time for them to ever even study it or think about it. I don't hear you saying that. But why should a, a pastor or an aspiring pastor consider whether acquiring this skill, mm-hmm. not just the knowledge, this skill of reading fluency uh, might be helpful or relevant or, or even fun for them and, yeah. and useful for their ministry? Yeah, yeah, that's a, a really great question. Um, it, it kind of actually brings me back to uh, the second main drawback of grammar translation method. So the thing it doesn't do is train you in reading fluency. The thing it does do is, like we said, it teaches you about the language. In a sense, it's trying to make you a, a linguist of Greek and Hebrew, yes. um, which is a good thing. But the way that it's a drawback for the method is you cannot become a skilled responsible linguist in two semesters yes. it's just it's just, it's a technical specialized field that takes way longer to to become proficient in and and you see that in the way that people at least who are kind of more in the maybe you know inner circles of greek and hebrew world talk about 
you know, le- you, you learn just enough to become dangerous or, you know, you kind of hear the, those yes. sorts of things. And, and it's because, again, linguistics is a, a specialized field. And if you yeah. don't know a lot, um, there's a lot of mistakes you can make. And so yes. that's a dynamis is related to the word dynamite, which means that <laughs> exactly. we need to have a dynamite faith or whatever the case may be. Right. You know, exactly just, right. you know, enough about how to read a lexicon to get yourself in trouble and say things that aren't true about Yeah, which is true of any specialized field, you know. Sure, it's a, it's a It's kind of a thing with people who take their first philosophy class and yes. you know, think they know everything. <laughs> absolutely. It, it, it's just how it goes. But the in contrast, you can become a fluent reader in two semesters to some degree. I mean, it's similar, mm. again, to back to the music analogy. Like, you're not going to become a, a skilled music theorist in two semesters, you know, a year, but you can actually get really, really good at playing the violin in just a year if you if you mm. put in the time. So there, there's a, a clear contrast there. So, so to the pastor or or whoever else, to your question, why should they care about reading fluency? One, it's a much more accessible and achievable goal than what a lot of people are trying to get out of the grammar translation method. Which um, is a little counterintuitive. I think a, a lot right. of people might think, I'm not going to put in the effort to become fluent a fluent reader, it would yes. take way too much time. I got sermons to write. I got a family I want to hang out with. I want to watch the new season of the Mandalorian at yeah. some point, you know, <laughs> it's a huge, that's a huge misconception that becoming yes. a fluent reader takes longer. Uh, but again, you look at, you look at just modern languages, like m- m- pretty much everyone, every adult human is f- a fluent reader of some language. Very few humans are linguists, you know, because yes. it's just a much more, it's something that's built into, into our, you know, biology more. Um, it's, it's not a technical specialized skill. Um, it's something we're all pretty good at already with one language. Um, so if you have the right resources and environment, you can probably do it with the second language. Um, so yeah, it is, it, it is counterintuitive, but I think it's true that it's mo- a more accessible goal. Um, <clears throat> even beyond kind of the accessibility of initially learning it kind of to your very early point about maintaining the languages. Yes. It's a much more practical and maintainable skill because like to go back to what I said, if you can read at 150 words per minute, you can sit down. If you have five minutes, you can sit down and read a chapter or two in Greek. Um, And that's all you need. All you need is the text and five or 10 minutes. When you learn via the grammar translation method, you usually need a lot more time, a lot more cognitive capacity uh, and energy, probably Bible software, you know, lexicon. Mm-hmm. Like you just need more to actually. Yeah, you need a something. stack of five books next to the text as well. Right. right. Yeah. Um, and I would also say, in general, um, being able to read flu- fluently is more enjoyable. I will say, yes. like, there, there are. There are some people who just l- yes. are, love linguistics and grammar and yes. things like that and and find that kind of process enjoyable. But most people would love to be able to sit down and just read the Greek text almost like they read in their native language or the Hebrew text. Yes. Like, I don't. I, yeah. Most people would, would love that. Um, so so those are, are some big things. I think maybe the last thing I'll say in, in terms of why it's important is even if you are one of those people who wants to really dive into the grammar and the linguistics and do the, those sorts of studies, reading fluency is a phenomenal foundation for that work. Because what reading fluency does for you, number one, is it builds intuitions about the language. Because you're yes. doing so much reading that you start to expect things in the text. Just like as I'm talking, you can almost predict certain things that I'm going to say as I'm talking. Uh, that starts to happen. Um, you also are just consuming much more text. And mm-hmm. the more text you c- consume, the more text you read, the more you're able to do that analysis because you you have more text in your head. You have more data to work with, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, so even if you do have that end goal of like deep grammatical analysis, Reading fluency goes a long way in supporting you even in that in that process as well. Yeah. Something else I thought of just I, I love all that. And something else I thought of just listening to you talking was I think there's this misconception. Um, you know, particularly people who are taught the original languages for purpose of preparing sermons. 
that the task of quote unquote exegesis is all about the grammar and the granular kind of, you know, verbal aspect. And can the present tense be something that's continuous and could this form, it's an imperative, but it could also be read as an indicative because that happens in the second, you know, the second plural here, or, you know, this is a proleptic aorist, which means it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, all of these things mm-hmm. that I think we associate with this, the skill set of being a responsible exegete. But it, it strikes me that being able to read an entire epistle or an entire gospel quickly is also a massively important skill for being a responsible exegete. Right. Because when we get on these, like, you know, I think, you know, John Piper once upon a time did, I don't know, 40 sermons on Romans eight or something, Mm -hmm. or, you know, and he just geeks out on Romans eight 28 and he does like four sermons on that one verse. And, you know, he's doing theology and whatnot around it and that's fine, but man, he's going hard at that grammar and translation bit. Yeah. Um, and not to say that he's not respecting the context of the epistle or, or, or anything like that, but there's definitely a forest for the trees thing going on here or a trees for the forest, whatever, whatever direction you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I would just exhort listeners um, and people who are preparing sermons and things like that. Don't think just because you're analyzing the grammar of the pericope right in front of you that you're exegeting the text in its full right. kind of even even like immediate linguistic literary context uh in a responsible way yeah and it seems to me that something like reading fluency actually will open up a lot of things um you know if you're reading a novel or a piece of classical literature or something like that you you don't just like you know what do these three paragraphs in chapter 14 of harry potter and the order order of the phoenix mean right. you're not you're not gonna you're not gonna read it that way um yeah i i think that's that's a phenomenal point and and i I like to use analogies a lot so another analogy there is helpful like reading the text fluently is a lot like watching a movie whereas doing the grammar translation work is kind of like reading like a a review of the movie Mm. um right you're reading a lot about the movie but you haven't actually experienced the movie as a whole um for yourself in kind of in real time for, yeah. uh, for yourself, because you know, that in real time is really important because if, even if you watch, watch the movie, but paused every two or three seconds, you're not going to experience it the way it's meant to be experienced. And, um, you know, if you were tasked with, you know, telling people about this movie, getting them really excited about it and mm. trying to get them to respond in an appropriate way to the movie, Watching the movie in real time, you know, encountering the lighting and the music and the emotions and all of that that's involved in watching the movie is going to be at least as important as reading the movie review and communicating that information to to people. So in the same way, you know, people often talk about like the role of Greek and Hebrew in sermon prep and in sermons. And I think a lot of people agree, you probably shouldn't actually talk much about Greek and Hebrew in your sermon, but your yeah, sermon should right. be informed by it. And I think an excellent way to for your sermon to be shaped and informed by Greek and Hebrew, again, is being able to read the entire passage in real time, experiencing it as a whole. Um, and you definitely pick up those nuances and the focus and the emphasis and the tone and the contrast. Mm-hmm. You pick all that up through fl- reading um, and then maybe you dive in deeper with some grammatical analysis here and there. But even that, like reading fluently often will alert you to the things that you should dive deeper on um, better than not being able to read fluently. Sure. Yeah. And I'm just thinking again of, you know, the the pastor or sermon prep and even congregants. I think a lot of congregants would like the idea of their pastor being able to read Greek and Hebrew fluently and would feel like that's, that's a good skill for them to acquire and would make them would build their trust in their ability to kind of expound the word for them and have reliable insights about it and whatever the case may be. Um, Okay. So in the time that remains, I don't know if you've given explicitly the, like, what's the not 
grammar translation method. Yeah. And and how might it address uh, some of the shortcomings of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've we've probably hinted at some things. Um, yeah. Just to kind of the terminology, um, the kind of alternative, a lot of people will call something like the communicative approach or the mm. living language approach yes. or something like. Just in case people want to kind of look into it, um, you know, there's variation even within that. The biggest thing uh, that unites kind of these alternative approaches is that we're, people are basically just trying to take modern second language acquisition research that's generally being applied to modern languages and we're trying to apply those to ancient languages. Um, f- in terms of, you know, what I what I think and kind of how we approach things at Biblingo is um, we follow, we generally follow um, a framework uh, kind of, pioneered by a second language acquisition scholar named Paul Nation uh, that he calls the four strands of language learning. Um, and I'll, I'll just run through them very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. The first one is is meaning-focused input. So input simply means you are you know receiving input in the language. So that can either be through reading the language or listening to the language. So it's input. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning-focused basically means that you are focused on the message that that input is trying to convey rather than being focused on the features of the language. In other words, how it's conveying that message. So you're focused on what the meaning is rather than how the various features of the language are creating that meaning. Um, So that's meaning-focused input. So the point is you need a lot of meaning-focused input. Um, Meaning-focused output is the second strand. And uh, you kind of alluded to this, um, practicing producing the language. So that would be either through speaking or writing. Um, And specifically, um, it's not just speaking in the sense of like reading aloud. It's it's producing a message via speaking or writing. And um, a lot of people think this isn't important because our goal is to read a text rather than to be able to speak or something like that. And a lot of proponents of, of this type of method actually, I think, do care a little bit too much about being able to converse in Greek and Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, our perspective is simply that there is really compelling research showing that practicing producing a language actually makes you a better reader of the language. Yeah. So we stay completely focused on the goal of being able to read. And the research just shows that if you want to become the best reader that you can, as efficiently as you can, yeah. then you need to practice some some production. Yeah, so it's not it's not learning to speak as like a flex, like look, I can have a exactly. conversation in Koine Greek. It's actually on the way to the goal, which is being able to read more. Fluently. Exactly, exactly. Um, so you need those two strands. Uh, the third strand is um, language focused learning. So this is really where the grammar translation method fits. Uh, the distinction is it's not the whole method. It's mm-hmm. So the four strands, the way Paul Nation talks about it, is you should divide it up equally among the four strands. So 25% of your time is devoted to each strand. The grammar translation method is only a small part of language-focused learning. There's other sorts of things you do in there, like vocabulary drills and stuff like that. Um, And so really, like the actual grammar translation method should only take up maybe 10 or 15% of your time studying the language. But it's it's still there, um, which is important. Uh, the fourth strand is fluency and fluency development. And so fluency in, in this context essentially means taking what you already know and getting faster um, and more effortless with it, kind of like we've we've talked about. Um, and so you not only want to learn new things, but you want to increase the speed and you know uh, ease at which you're able to read those things that you're learning. Uh, so fluency development is kind of is the fourth strand. So um, yeah, so so that's kind of our framework. And uh, again, a lot of those things you don't really get in a, a traditional course. Um, you'll notice too, like other than the language focused learning strand, <clears throat> the other three strands really don't involve English or your native language at all. Uh, so you are doing a lot in uh, Greek and Hebrew. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of the framework that we use. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I like I say, I, I'm a I'm a true believer, and if if nothing else, I don't know if you need to be all nerded out on the kind of philosophy of the approach or anything like that. But as a really kind of 
handsomely presented, you know, affordable and, you know, to some extent, if you're the person that likes being able to check something off your to-do list and having the kind of a, a atomic habits kind of spreadsheet of like, I did my Greek every day. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a great, great way to do it. It seems to me um, that is, will not only help you kind of review or learn or, you know, practice, but also um, develop and maintain your, your skill and facility in the language. So I, um, you know, this is not, this was not a, uh, you know, an official commercial for Biblingo or anything like that. There's no exchange of funds going on here. I genuinely just believe that this is really relevant to the, uh, our mission here at the CPT and the types of people that are listening. And um, I can't speak uh, highly enough of the work that you guys are doing. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a true believer and a user and all that. And again, I'm not getting, not getting paid to say that. So um I think at any stage, whether you're just starting out or, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you got your PhD in, in theology and you left the, in, the languages way behind back in seminary, um, but you're pastoring and you would like to kind of brush up and expand your facility with that. I think it, there's all, you know, or, you know, in my case, I'm in the middle of a PhD program where it's my, my job to, in theory, be pretty good at this. I don't know. <laughs> Um, so that's all great. And I just really recommend this and, uh, Nick, uh, thanks so much for your time. And, uh, just to kind of finish off, where can people who are interested in learning more about Biblingo signing up? Um, is there a kind of try it out structure for folks who are listening? You know, let let people know what they can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can kind of learn everything you need to at our website, biblingo.org. Um, we, we offer a 10 day free trial, um, where you can try out the program. Uh, we do something called the 10 day challenge during that trial period, where if you complete a certain number of lessons in 10 days, you get an additional 10 days. So you can get up to 20 free days. If you really take advantage of those 20 days, I think, I think anyone who does that will be really surprised at how much they learn. Um, again, like you said, even if they're already very experienced with the languages, um, they'll, they'll see a big difference, I think. Um, so, so yeah, that's where, where you can learn more. Yeah. To illustrate, I would say that if you went hard on this, you know, and this is not, none of this conversation I think is to imply that it's not hard work to learn a new language, you know, really that is the ingredient kind of no matter the, no matter the approach is consistency and hard work. There's no way around that. Um, but as you were talking, I do think genuinely that someone could go from a pretty basic knowledge of Greek, just for example, put 20 days in with this Mm -hmm. software doing, you know, a few lessons a day or something like that and really working through it and then be able to pick up, um, the gospel of John or, uh, first John and really surprise themselves on how quickly they can work through it. Yeah. Um, so that's just a, I guess, I guess an added, added teaser. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Nick, thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Uh, I know we kept you, kept you a little longer than I said we were going to, but really enjoyed talking and uh, really appreciate everything you guys are doing. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Nick. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope it was interesting, enjoyable, helpful. If you are interested in learning more about Biblingo or signing up to use Biblingo, uh, Nick has offered our listeners a special discount code for 15% off uh, from when you sign up in perpetuity. So this is not just a one-time code. My understanding is that this works forever. The code is CPT. If you enter that when you sign up, uh, all caps CPT, I don't know if the capital letters matter or not, but there you have it. You can get 15% off Duolingo. I hope you take advantage of that.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you appreciated this episode, could I ask you to consider sharing it online with others, rating the show on Apple Podcasts, or even leaving a review? Uh, It means a lot to us, and it helps others hear about the show. The CPT Podcast is a production of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our producer and editor is Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlicher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.